Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Patrick. And I'm Tane Kell. So, Tane, today we're going to talk about something near and dear to your heart. Some of our listeners have asked for some help with things like case management, office management. So tell the folks what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's really helpful for us to just discuss ideas, techniques, and things that we all use to make our lives easier. And today we're going to talk about managing your civil caseload. Uh, just some tips, some tricks, some other things that I use and that you use um, to help us manage those unwieldy civil cases and keep them from getting out of hand. So are you talking about when you say this, are you excluding or including domestic relations? I'm including it. Um, Some of the techniques I use in domestic uh, cause me to separate them out or maybe hear them on a different day or something like that. We'll talk about that a little bit too. But I think a lot of what we're talking about here can apply equally with respect to domestic cases too. So let's start off with why it's important for us to manage our caseloads. I mean, obviously, that you know, there are some things that stick out. I mean, you don't want things to cascade out of control so that you can't get a handle on them. But, but there are some really important reasons for why we do that. And, and we've, we've really just kind of listed two, I'm sorry, three general ideas of what we do. Basically, you have that duty. Right. It's your responsibility. And I'm going to put in parentheses here, I think the public has no other way to compare us to one another. Yeah, that's very true. You know, I don't think they know if you're a good judge, bad judge, liberal judge, conservative judge, what hard sentencer, easy sentencer, but how many cases do you have, Penny? You must not be working very hard. That's yeah. the only way I think the public has to compare us. Anyway, so your duty and your responsibility. Yeah. This, this motion, sec- yeah, the second thing is... Motion versus inertia. Yeah, that means uh, how do we keep things moving? How do we keep them from stagnating and piling up? And then lastly, making the decision is key. You remember we had that other podcast uh, episode. I do. Our our good friend, uh, retired judge, uh, Lamar Sizemore. Friend of podcast? Friend of podcast, FOP. And uh, and, and what was it Judge uh, Sizemore taught us was the best and most important thing to uh, to, to you know make your life better and be a better judge? His last rule was just rule. That's right. At some point, you just need to rule. Make a decision. Make the decision. So we're going to go over those uh, in different ways. But I think one of the places uh, that we'll start is um, is OCGA Section 15-6-21. That is a specific statutory requirement that we each have to simply rule on issues that are before us. And Wade, what are the requirements depending on what kind of jurisdiction you're in? So if your population... Of your of this particular county is less than a hundred thousand. You must rule on motions within thirty days of them being submitted. If your population is more than one hundred thousand, you have ninety days. Now there are people who argue that those numbers should actually be reversed. That that usually if you're in more than a hundred thousand uh, population county, you probably have more assets and can get do things more more quickly. You have more staff maybe. But regardless, there's sort of a, a, a third section that says. And if you routinely don't meet this guideline, that's grounds for impeachment. 
That's a terrible word, Wade. And it's don't a, use that again ever on the podcast. So anyway, just so that you know, the statute says it, it basically could get you unjudged. Right. And, and hey, Wade, I think a, a, an important point here uh, to to begin with is. How do I know if I have a motion pending uh, yeah. so that I can meet the 30 to 90 day deadline? You know, that's one of the things you and I talked about. Our, our clerks are, are trying to figure out a way to give us a, a notice through the uh, case management system. How's your case management system in Cub County? Well, it's good. I don't have one. Um, so <laughs> it is 2020. You it know is. That. Yeah. So we, yeah, I know. I know. We're working on getting a case management system in our jurisdiction. But for now, um, we kind of find out about motions in my court the old fashioned way. I have a rule that if you file a motion, you're supposed to bring me a courtesy copy or send me a courtesy copy so that I'll be on notice that I need to go ahead and start that process. Yeah. I think that there's some, some, movement in the uniform rules to try to change that as well to say you need to send that to me yeah and i, I think, have just no way of knowing yeah i agree i think in most case management systems there's a way that you can put a, a uh, an alert when uh, motions of certain types are filed and so you know we'll we'll work that out as as these case management systems get put into place and and we get more sophisticated there's also a second reason um or a second requirement that all of us as judges have on us that is a reason reason to keep your caseload managed. And, and, and where does that fall? As, that's Judicial Canon 2, and specifically Rule 2.1, that essentially says your priority has to be being a judge. Yeah, I mean, specifically it says this, the, ju- the judicial duties of judges take precedence over all their other activities. Now that says activities. That doesn't just say their judge stuff. Our podcast recording. Yeah, our podcast recording or anything else that takes up their time. It also says, that same rule says, their judicial duties include all the duties of their offices prescribed by law, but primarily judges serve as the arbiters of facts and and law for the resolution of disputes. And then there's another important paragraph too, Wade. It says, prompt disposition of the court's business requires judges to devote adequate time to their duties, to be punctual in attending court and expeditious in determining matters under their submission, and to insist that court officials, litigants and their lawyers, cooperate with the courts to achieve that end. You know, we had that uh, JQC presentation at our most recent seminar, and at that they said one of the primary complaints they receive about lawyer, about judges, excuse me, is that the judge is habitually late. Yeah, just late to court. I mean, one of the things that they said, and I, I agreed with it wholeheartedly, but it kind of makes you laugh, is if you can't get to court by 9, start your calendar at 9.30. If you can't get there by 9.30, start it at 10. I mean, you're the person who sets the calendar, so do it in a way that's not going to make you habitually late, wasting people's time, because people get fed up with that after a while, and they file complaints about you. Well, it's, you know, when I practiced law, we had a judge who no longer is with us, but inevitably, court would be set at 9. Inevitably, he would be there at 11. Wow. And it was just, it, and, and you know, nobody went and told him that he was the emperor's new clothes. No, sir, you're actually nude. We, we just, it was, it became one of those things that was a joke. Well, and, and the second thing that the JQC said is probably one of the second uh, most common things they get complaints about is judges just not ruling, just mm-hmm. sitting on things forever and a day. And, you know, if that's you, 
Um, we're going to give you some tips and some things to hopefully help you in that in that respect and help move along. So we've got a few tools um, in the toolbox that we're going to talk about this morning. And there's nothing magical about any of these. They're just things that we use to try to move cases, try to move civil cases. You know, the first one on your list is a peremptory calendar. And I'm going to give you all the credit in the world. I did not know that this thing had a name. But I was trying to do this. In, in other words, call all of my open cases on some sort of regular basis. In my, play, in my case, it's annual Yeah, that I try to call all my open cases. But I had no idea that it had a name and a rule <laughs> number and all of that. And we will talk about that in just a second. Yeah, so the first tool that we're going to talk about is peremptory calendars. The second is the five-year rule, which is one of my favorite rules in all of the law. And then finally, there's just this overarching threat of a civil jury trial. I mean, there's nothing like setting cases down on a calendar to get things moving. And we'll talk about that in a minute uh, as well. So, so let's let's first go Wade to what a peremptory calendar is, and and uh, some people call these status calendars, some call them peremptory calendars. But let's start out with the rule. So there's a Uniform Superior Court Rule 20 that talks about peremptory calendars, and this is what I brought to your attention that we talked about, and just just. Tell everybody what that rule talks about. I'm not going to read it because yeah. it's, it's got a little link to it. But basically, periodically, the assigned judge can call all the cases to the courtroom and say, why is this still pending and what do we need to do? Yeah. Some people call it a status conference or whatever. But instead of setting all of those separately, it allows you to uh, sort of open all of your files and bring everybody to court. Now, I'll tell you, when I was in law practice, twice a year, sometime around July 4th, sometime around Christmas, I would sort of stop the movement of the law practice and say, I want to touch every file in here and know why and where and all of that, just in case one got stuck. And this is back in before all this paperless stuff, but one got stuck behind the other one or we forgot to, to send somebody a, a, the last bill or whatever. It made everybody do it. And, and, and my lawyers scream at me about having to come to this peremptory calendar call, but it, you're, you're actually saving them. Well, the reason for doing it is the same reason you just said, Wade. We as judges need to make sure that in the process, not only are we moving cases, but we haven't just lost track of a case. And it's not just us. The first time I did a peremptory calendar when I was a brand new judge, I, I was not picking up a backlog. I got given cases from my colleagues, and that's a whole different story. Good cases, for a different right? Day. Yeah, they give you all the great stuff. But anyway, I did my first peremptory calendar, which had hundreds of cases on it. I had a divorce case that was 10 years old that had that had never moved. It was it was just sitting out there. The lawyer showed at the up at the peremptory calendar and they said they both said, "Judge, we've lost track of our clients. We're going to try to locate them. We don't know what the status is, but we think they reconciled and we're going to get back to you on that." So I called them back 30 days later and they said, "Uh, judge, we've both talked to our clients and they still want a divorce, and they've just been waiting for us to do something on it 10 years later. So anyway, I'm, there's a reason. Thank goodness they didn't marry somebody else, or at least think they did. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there were a lot of host problems that resulted. But that's the reason that we do it. So so, so let me let me just give you a suggestion. Um or a few suggestions. First of all, I do them yearly. Once a year, we have this big mass calendar call, and we call all these cases in. The second thing, and I think this is really critical, and the rule essentially suggests or implies that this is appropriate, and that is I make your appearance at this calendar as counsel mandatory. And we have a rule, um, and we will we will uh, put our uh, order with respect to our peremptory calendars on um, 
goodjudgepod.com, our website. Um, but we make your appearance mandatory. If you are, if you want to be excused from it, um, there are some very detailed things that you have to go through in order to get excused. You can't simply file a conflict notice, and it's very explicit about that. Um, and if you don't appear at the calendar, it also makes it very clear that your case will be either dismissed without prejudice if you're the plaintiff or your pleadings could be subject to uh, to being struck if you're the defendant. Mechanically, let's say you have 100 cases on this calendar. Are you literally signing that dismissal without prejudice that day, or while, are you going to give them 24 hours? While to- they are, while as soon as I call the case, if nobody appears and nobody answers, we are handwriting dismissals without prejudice right there, and I'm signing them during the proceeding. I mean, we're, we're, we're moving cases. That's the whole purpose of this calendar. And people are on notice that that's what's going to happen. Um, and then if parties show up and they say, oh, yeah, judge, we just kind of lost track of this case. We're not really doing it. I say, OK, great. We're going to do a pretrial <laughs> right now on your case. And we're going to we're going to issue a pretrial order at the end of today's date. So y'all stick around and uh, talk about your case with each other for a minute. And then I'll get back with you and we're going to do a pretrial uh, in just a few minutes. And so because uh, because, again, you're there to move the business. I'll tell you, folks. I have to. I have to say, rarely do I want to admit Tane's right, but this <laughs> this is a this is invaluable to managing your caseload. Yeah, I, I really I suggest just have that date set on your calendar. Uh, you know, whatever you want in the fall, in the spring, whenever it is, whenever you feel like doing a little spring cleaning. You know, just get that get that calendar notice. So tell everybody about the five rule, the five year rule. I think we all know it, but I'm not sure if if you gave everybody a dollar if they could find it. Well, let me just give kudos to the legislature. Rarely do they hit a grand slam, but the five-year rule is an incredible rule. Um, it's There's really two places that this rule is located, OCGA section 9-2-60 subsection B and 9-1141E. Um, basically, what the, both of those rules say is that civil cases are subject to dismissal if no substantive orders have been entered within a five-year period. You know, these rules, sometimes our clerks will help with these that they'll suggest that we should should enter these orders or they'll flag them for us. Sometimes not. I mean, we, it depends on how, every, how busy everybody is. But now, Tane, what about a, if you issued a rule NASA or a notice of hearing? Is that a substantive order? No, it's not. There's some case law out there that says that, uh, well, first of all, there's a case that says uh, NISI, uh, and, and I've given you a list of, uh, of cases in the, uh, in the materials to look at, but there are a ca- there's a case that says uh, a NISI is a rule, not an order, and therefore that's not substantive. Um, a leave of absence, for example, is not a substantive order. Uh, there's case law that basically says it, it has to be an order that essentially does something, that moves the case or that, that, that makes a ruling or does something something. And so um, the great thing about this section is, and the case law says this, it says it serves the dual purpose of preventing court records from becoming cluttered by unresolved and inactive litigation and protecting litigants from dilatory counsel. That's that's a specific quote from the Lewis versus Price case that I've cited. Now, folks, Um, remember, these are dismissals without prejudice. Yeah. And so that it may impact if somebody had filed a renewal before, had somebody had dismissed and voluntarily dismissed and refiled. I mean, it may be impactful. Don't get me wrong. But I think that most of the time you see people screaming because they're going to have to pay to refile the case, reserve the case. 
and crank back up again if they're actually trying to pursue it. But nine times out of 10, what happens on these cases is, is they go away because it's a case that got settled and the lawyers forgot to file the dismissal. Or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a divorce where the party's reconciled. Or it's something weird like that where the final action was simply never taken and it's a way of getting rid of those things. Absolutely. Um, the language of OCGA Section 9260B says any action or proceeding filed in any of the courts of this state in which no written order is taken for a period of five years shall automatically stand dismissed with costs to be taxed against the party plaintiff. Now, the interesting thing about that, um, and OCGA Section 91141 contains similar language, but the interesting thing about this is the dismissal is automatic. It is a it is something that happens by operation of law. So you don't have to give the parties notice. You do not have to have a hearing. In fact, you don't even have to enter the order. The clerk can actually simply close the case file once five years has passed because it is an automatic uh, happening. Yeah, I, and our, our clerks have been kind enough to, to do that in, in many, many cases. So, Tane... So we've done a five-year rule. We've done our peremptory challenge. I mean, our peremptory calendars, peremptory challenges, our peremptory, our peremptory calendars. Give me th the other things that you think that folks can use to help move their civil cases. Sure. So, so first of all, I'm going to talk about a rule that I think is helpful to all, and we forget this sometime. Uniform Superior Court Rule 6.3 says all motions in civil actions including motions for summary judgment, are to be decided without oral hearing. Now, the exception for that, um, except for post-trial motions, is in a summary judgment motion where a separate motion for oral hearing is filed, then you're required to give an oral hearing. But this is important because when people file motions to dismiss, when people file motions for judgment on the pleadings, all of those things, you do not have to give a hearing. And quite frankly, in most cases, no hearings required. They're generally fairly simple uh, motions that have to do with things like jurisdictional issues or, you know, things that don't require you to take evidence or have the lawyers come in and explain, you know, the operation of the law to their case. It's just something rather mechanical or, or, or basic. So what I'm saying is don't get caught up in setting everything down for a hearing when a, when a motion is filed, um, because that's going to slow you down. That's a great point. Now, Tayton, case counts. <laughs> case counts. So I'm kind of reminded some of those old ads from around the Atlanta area. What's a case count? Um, back right. in the days, like, where's Loganville? Right. But, but long story short, case counts, I think, are a term of art with the AOC now, where right. the, the county clerks have to give the annual reporting of the number of cases heard and all closed and all that stuff. Right. That's not really what you're talking about, is it? That's right. I think it is incumbent upon all of us as judges to know how many cases we have that are pending in our court at any given time. So I think that as a judge in Superior Court, I ought to know how many criminal cases I have in front of me, how many civil cases I have in front of me, and I ought to have a game plan for managing those cases, either by 
their age or the time since they've been filed or whatever it might be so that I have an overall strategy for trying to make sure that, like you said a minute ago, something didn't fall behind the filing cabinet in the old days or I didn't put something in the wrong stack of paper on my desk and, you know, it's sitting for a long time. Whatever that might be, um, how do you manage that? And one of the ways that you manage that is you look at the numbers and you see, are my numbers going down? Are they going up? Are they staying the same? I mean, You're not watching this on a daily basis. No, no, I'm not. But I will say that some of the new case management systems give you the ability to literally keep keep track of this thing on a day-to-day basis with no effort at all. I mean, you can look at it every morning if you want to. I know David Emerson looks at his case count every single day. Um, David's awesome. And uh, I wish I had the ability to do what he can do with this system. But anyway, um, but, what, but, but what I'm trying to emphasize is however you can get that case count data, even if all you're doing is measuring it on a year-to-year basis or every six-month basis or something like that, you need to know, am I moving enough cases so that at least my case count is staying stable? Steady, or am I falling behind or am I getting ahead? Am I, am I really killing it? And, and I'm reducing the number of cases that I have. I will tell you that I have a good system for that with respect to criminal cases. It is much more difficult with the system that I have to man, to get numbers for civil cases, but I do the best that I can. Now, what you need to know is how can you get your case count data? I mean, and what, and what are the methodologies of how you get case count data? So first of all, uh, do you have a case management system that allows you to look at that sitting at your desk? If, you, if not, can you get that data from your clerk? Will your clerk be able to provide it? And I'm talking about the superior court clerk. Um, what system of filing do they have? Are they still keeping cases on an index card or in individual paper files? Or can they give you a printout uh, like in the old days when we used to get those green and white sheets of paper with holes punched on the edges of them? Uh, most of y'all won't remember that. Um, and, if, and also, if you're saying to me, what is a case count, then that again that's something that you need to have some discussions with uh, with people in your office but but I did want to let you know that rule 39.9 uh, of the Superior, uniform superior court rules talks about case counts and what it mainly talks about is what is reported to the AOC at the end of the year but it's an important rule because it tells you the kind of data that should be available through your superior court clerk so let's just talk about a little bit of that Wade. well rule 39.9 essentially says the chief judge can require on a monthly basis to have the clerk report the general civil domestic and criminal sort of case statuses of the judges that work in that circuit. And then the, it has some delineations of, so in other words, you can put on there, this is what the type of case it is, what case number it is, what the charges are, if it's criminal, what's the action underneath it, if it's civil, et cetera, which is really not the important point. The important point is if you are sideways, maybe with your clerk, you do have the ability under the uniform rules to ask them. And then ultimately I think I hate to say this order Order. them to provide this information on a monthly basis. You wouldn't want this on a daily basis. And unfortunately it says the chief judge. And if you're not the chief judge, if the chief judge doesn't want to do it, you have to get, go through that whole exercise. But long story short, you can have a, a, a quick snapshot of exactly where each of the judges in the circuit stand. And the, you, know, my, you know, the only problem with this is 
in the era of e-filing, a lot of the case type information, for example, is being designated by the e-filer who might be pro se. Right. And if they say this is a white elephant, this case doesn't become a blue donkey. Right. It, it remains a white elephant unless the clerk overrides the case type selected by the e-filer. Right. Which is posing some problems with the accuracy of some of the case reports that are being sent to the AOC now. That's true. But the the big point is the data that's uh, that's set forth in Rule 39.9 is the type of data that your clerk should be able to generate for you because it's the kind of data they're required to report to the AOC. So anyway, you may want to look at that rule, see if some of that data would be useful to you and ask for it at least, as I said, maybe two times a year, something like that to be given to you. So Tane, once you realize where you stand, Mm -hmm. you've gotten your numbers, as they say, what sort of tools do you use to keep your docket moving? Well, I think the first thing that is imperative for me, at least, is I have a monthly civil uh, non-jury calendar. It's a week long. I have it every single month. And it is literally for anything and everything that is not requiring a jury that, that needs my attention. And so... Anyone can get on that calendar. In my jurisdiction, the way that calendar is set up is if you need less than uh, half a day, less than three hours or so, you can go down to the clerk's office and get the case set on my next available non-jury calendar. Um, If you need more than half a day, you call my office and we specially set you for that. But um, you need to decide as a judge, first of all, if I'm going to have these kinds of calendars, how are those calendars going to be managed? Is the clerk going to set that for you? Are are people going to simply need to call your office and set that up with a a person who's in charge of your calendar, whether that's your assistant or or whoever that might be? Or is it going to be some combination of both? And as I said, mine's kind of a, a combination, a hybrid, because if they need less than half a day, they can go on the regular calendar. If they need more than half a day, they call my assistant. Um, but see, now you have the beauty of being in one county. Exactly. I'm and a, I'm a one a, county jurisdiction. How, how in your multi-county jurisdiction do you manage civil calendars? To be example? fair, they, I guess this goes back to motion and inertia. If you file a motion and request a hearing, we specially set it on a date and time in that county because we have to rotate between three counties and there's issues about the type of room we have. Do we have a, a big courtroom or a small courtroom, et cetera? But in other words, we have to rotate between all three counties. There are eight of us. And so with that, we're always moving. But long story short, we can we may not have a week to dedicate in one of the three counties. I mean, at some point you run out of math. Sure. Where the month is only so long. Right. So we are much more inclined to set you any specific date and time and you get a 30-minute slot or an hour-long slot or a 15-minute slot, whatever you're telling us you need to a certain point. But we, we're required to make that work that we have to hold everybody to the amount of time you tell us. Well, and there's a judge in my jurisdiction that despite the fact that, you know, it's a one-county jurisdiction who sets you down for a spe- – on her week, her calendar week, sets you down for a specific date and a specific time based on your time announcement, and you get that full time, but that's all the time you get, uh, whatever you announce. And then she 
is moving right to the next case. And, and you it's know, kind of more what we have to do, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a very efficient system. Um, I simply try to move as many cases on a particular day as I can. So my clerk knows to set no more than 10 cases on those calendar dates for me. And I just go in and call the calendar first thing in the morning, reset the calendar, usually based on the length of time that's announced. It's something of a free for all when we're going through that calendar in that, um, you know, there may be lawyers out in the hall negotiating on a case. There may be an uncontested divorce uh, that's in front of, you know, that's up in the front of the courtroom talking to me. And then there may be somebody who's waiting for me to decide a uh uh, you know, contempt motion, uh, who's announced, you know, 30 minutes and, and needs a court reporter. So, so, so what I do is, and just to back up how this is, is set up is, um, let's say you're set for Tuesday of the civil non-jury, uh, calendar. Uh, you may have a domestic case on, if it's a non-domestic case, um, we actually have one day that we, that we designate for non-domestic cases. Um, so I may hear summary judgment motions or, you know, Daubert whatever. motion. Yeah. Or... Something like that on that day. But anyway, on the day that's our, uh, civil, uh, non-jury domestic day, uh, I call the cases in the morning. Um, I ask them for a brief description of the matter. And what I always say to them is, tell me what it is you want me to hear today, because frequently your notes about why you're here and my notes about why you're here are completely different. So give me a brief description about that. Tell me how long it will take to argue your side. And please let me know if you need the court reporter to take it down. And then that way, as we go through the call of the cases, my court reporter who's sitting in the courtroom knows which one she needs to take down. Um, then I recast the calendar by usually by the length of the announcements. I pre-try any cases that say they want a pre-trial with me first. I take those up because that way then they can go back out in the hall and negotiate with one another while I'm taking up other other matters. Um, and then... Um, Do you ever I, release them for that day, like come back after lunch? Yeah, I will. So, so if somebody says, you know, Judge, we're going to need two and a half hours for this case, um, I may say, are there any issues you need to pre-trial with me? If they say yes, we pre-trial them and then we release them. If they say no, then I say, okay, folks, I've got a pretty full calendar this morning. Come back at one thirty or 2.30 or whatever it might be, whatever it looks like is reasonable. What is a pre-trial? Um, what do you that, mean, that's where, with me? you know, if they want to come back and say, Hey judge, we've just got this one issue that we can't resolve. Tell us what you've done in other cases like this. So we can go back and tell our clients what you might do. And then they'll go back and negotiate that issue or talk to their clients about that issue. And frequently just five minutes with talking to them about, you know, a particular, what, what judge, what do you do when you have one parent who's out of state and the other parent who's in state? And what does your visitation generally look like in that situation? And, you know, I may be, I'm May, they may even walk out with a, a previous order I've entered in one of those cases just so that they know what I might do if they go forward. And it's really helpful sometimes for them to do that. Some, sometimes lawyers want to pre-try something. They come back and say, you know, Judge, our clients are both being really unreasonable on this, and we just need a little help getting over this one issue. And, uh, Judge, do you do a visitation for dogs? And I say, no, we do not do visitation schedules for dogs. Look, if I don't let let you visit with a big screen TV. You right. can't visit with a colleague. Amen. So yeah, we don't do that. All, All right. right. So so let's talk about something I think we both use some version of a case management order slash scheduling order. That's right. Now in a case management order, in in Wade's world, that is more typically in a domestic relations case where I'm going to say, look, y'all have agreed we can shorten the time available for discovery. We can. I'm going to mandate mediation. 
you might want to even agree on the mediator. I mean, we can do lots of things, but then there is an order that I can hold people's feet to as we, as this case malingers, I guess, is there is, or, or, or meanders maybe is a better M word. Right. Um, that the case is just not moving and I can hold everybody to it and say, Hey, we've got some dates we got to do. Do you do that? I do. Um, my philosophy about, about, and I call, I, I call them scheduling orders. Usually my philosophy about a scheduling order is I do not automatically enter a scheduling order in every case. Hmm. I wait until, as I like to say, people invite me to their discovery party. Um, if there's a problem that they pose for me, or if they're asking me to extend discovery on a case, whether it's domestic or whether it's a, a regular case, um, I generally will not just do a wholesale extension of discovery. Rather, I want to say, what discovery do you still need to do and when can you get it done? Because you give them six months, they don't do any discovery during that six months or they do very little during that month. You've got a pretty idea that that case isn't going to move unless you help it move. And so what I want to do is I want to enter a scheduling order. And so what I say to the parties is, you tell me what discovery you still need to do. You tell me the time frame in which you can do it, and I will enter a scheduling order that mandates that. Are you doing this in a courtroom? Are you doing it on telephone? Are you doing it in an email? I prefer to do it on telephone. So if, if I am, if I either get a notice on a, let's say a motion to compel, or, you know, sometimes we'll get contacted by someone saying, we need to have something set down on your calendar because we're having a real problem with discovery. My immediate response in any discovery dispute is, is it something we can handle with a telephone conference? And the reason that I do that, and I'm kind of skipping down to the next thing, but the reason that I, that I encourage you to use telephone conferences for discovery disputes is a discovery dispute will stall the entire process until you can get the parties in front of you. They will just essentially throw up their hands and say, well, we can't do anything else. It also causes the the lawyers to get entrenched in a position. They they sort of start digging in and fighting with each other personally sometimes. It gets a little more personal. And if you can nip that in the bud with a phone conference, it's the best thing to do. And so normally we will invite them, we'll say, hey, look, can we is this something we can do over the phone? The judge is available tomorrow at you know, 4.30 for a short conference, we'll get the parties on the phone and get things ironed out. I think it's a really efficient way of trying to avoid making a problem worse. And so then what I'll generally finish that conference, or if we have to have a hearing, the hearing up with is saying, all right, we need a scheduling order now. Let's, um, you guys submit within 10 days, tell me what what you want, what the schedule should be. If you can't agree on that, both send me proposed scheduling orders. I'll combine them into an order, and I'll make that the order of the court. You know, as a as just sort of a preliminary matter, I use scheduling orders too, but and it's just a phraseology thing. I'll use case management orders in domestic. I'll use scheduling orders in civil, like potential jury trials. And when somebody says, Judge, we are looking for a trial date, that's when they're going to get a scheduling order from me. Yeah. And that scheduling order says, here are the things that I require before I will set a jury trial date for your civil case. However, in my exchange is, when I set your jury trial date, you're number one. You're not on the, you're not behind my criminal calendar. Right. It, frankly, it gives me a little fresh air. You know, I have a jury coming in anyway in May. So I could say, hey, criminal guys, y'all are now the second place behind the civil. 
And it lets me try something other than a drug case or a murder or shooting or whatever. Right. So that's kind of nice as well. So so we do the same thing. Yeah. Let me just tell you. So so my scheduling orders normally set out very specifically uh, the timing and scope of discovery. And I don't just mean, hey, you got two more months for discovery. I mean, the deposition of the plaintiff will be taken within 30 days. The deposition of all defendants will be completed within 90 days. Um, And then it will have things like dates for filing any dispositive motions. Any dispositive motions will be filed within 30 days after the completion of these depositions. Um, uh, also, the date that the pretrial, proposed pretrial order is going to be due, usually that says 30 days after the court decides any dispositive motions. And then finally, the date for trial. And if we, to the extent we can, we'll go ahead and set down, a, especially set down a case for trial so that the parties know, okay, we have a date certain now. We have to meet these scheduling deadlines because we're set down for trial. Tain, in every civil case, domestic, whatever, do you require mediation? Yeah, we do. Um, we have a we have an order that goes out in every single case that lets the parties know they're required to mediate. Usually, I don't require mediation in a domestic case before the temporary. Um, I'll go ahead and do a temporary because sometimes we need that and they can't get in to mediate the case. Um, sometimes doing a temporary helps them in mediation. So we'll do that. But before you come to a final, you will have to have gone to through mediation, same within any civil case, um, you have to mediate the case before we do, we set it down for here our trial. We do exactly the same thing because you can't have a standing order, so we issue the order in every case. We do that too. Um, and in addition, our ADR people will actually reach out to the parties and say, hey, you've, you're scheduled for mediation coming up. Do you want us to mediate this case? And if so, on what day do you want to do it? I mean, it's that it's that set of a process. You know, Tane, I think on the prior pod episode, we already discussed the discovery dispute and how to help move that along. But as you've said, you sometimes fold your scheduling orders into a discovery dispute resolution. Yep kind of where they wanted you or not you said as as you said if they invite you to their party they leave with a gift and the gift being the scheduling order that's right um tell me some of the red flags that you see or or maybe some things that are pretty regular for you on managing your caseload yeah um you know if you start to see things like uh, requests for extensions of discovery, and they give you no reason. They don't tell you what discovery they've completed. It looks like maybe they haven't completed any discovery. That's a red flag. Um, if it's an open-ended discovery request, as I've said, and it looks like it could be more limited, I mean, that's always a question that I will ask. Would a scheduling order help is always a question I ask. You're also looking at things like requests to extend their mediation deadline. I mean, why? Why do you not want to go ahead and mediate the case? Is it really not ready, or are you just putting off the inevitable? Um, requests for continuances that don't give you any legal reason. You know, that's a big red flag for me. Um, repeated questionable notices for leaves of absence. There are actually people who will abuse the leave of absence process in order to avoid going to trial on a case. Motions to withdraw. You know, the case gets right up to trial and they withdraw. I'm I'm not a judge who wants to force people to do a pro bono trial, but if you carried this ball all the way to the goal line and you're not willing to go across the goal because you're not getting paid, that's probably something you should have let me know a long time ago and and addressed with your client. Um, Motions for a jury trial at a non-jury calendar. Let me just tell you how Judge Kell resolves this one. If we get to a non-jury calendar, and let's say we're there for a final on a divorce, and it's been noticed to all the parties that it's a bench trial, uh, you know, notice final for the divorce, and they show up, and one of the lawyers says, oh, oh judge, this morning we filed our request for, for a jury trial on that. 
you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find you a jury. We might take it up that day, in fact. Um, All the witnesses are supposed to already be there. Exactly. We were already there for trial anyway. I mean, the only change is who's going to be the finder of fact. Now, some of us don't have that luxury. We don't have juries always available. But wait. Do they know that you can't get a jury for them? Because one day I said to them, hey, look, we don't have this isn't a jury week for us, but it is for state court. So y'all give me about 30 minutes and I'm going to call state court and see if they have available jurors and we'll get you your jury trial. Y'all just hang. That case settled. You're sh- um, no uh, way. I am serious. It, no way. The lawyers had a very heart to heart discussion uh, before going to jury You know, trial. if the legislature is because, li- you know, I'm sure the legislature is listening to our podcast. Everybody is. But I, if, All the kids are doing it. If they could just give it a deadline that if you want a jury trial, there's some deadline somewhere. Please, that would be. You know, at the, at the conclusion of discovery, six months, two weeks, a year and a half, not before trial. At some point, I just wish that there was a deadline that you needed to ask for that jury trial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then one of the other red flags that I frequently see is motions to compel discovery that aren't filed until right before trial. I mean, don't don't be bringing me that, you know, late to the party. I, I want to know about motions to compel early on. Like I said, we can usually resolve those in a phone call. Um, you know, uh, the only other things I can suggest to you is if 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 you're ever in doubt about how to move a case, set it down for a hearing, status hearings, call them whatever you want to. Call the case in for a hearing. Find out what's holding the case up and get it moving. That's that's really a big uh, a big deal to manage your case. Anything else, Wade? No, folks. I, you know, it, it, we could go on forever about this because we've had different experiences, but it probably depends a lot on your facts and your factual situations. We are going to sort of end this episode and, and continue to talk a little bit about how to manage uh, civil cases in a another episode dealing with dispositive pretrial motions so for now in rainy Athens, snowy i mean yeah snowy look at that we're in athens and it's snowing it's in uh february by the way this is wade patrick and i'm tane kell have a great day thank you folks for listening to the good judgment podcast this podcast was originally the brainchild of mr doug ashworth the executive director of icje special thanks to the university of georgia college of law and specifically jim henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us thanks as always to stephen turner and turner up media who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us on our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.